I didn't even have aspirin with me. It had no no painkillers of any kind. Spent a really uncomfortable night there. And in the morning, by, by morning, my knee was the size of a soccer ball and completely rigid, locked, you know, so it couldn't be moved at all. And I, so I made a little sled out of putting my skis together and t- you know, lashing the pack to the skis. And then I would, I lay on top of the pack. I pushed with my good leg and I pulled with my ice axe. And then I spent two days crawling down the glacier back to where the airplane had dropped me off and was going to pick me up. I had basically destroyed the knee, had completely dislocated. When I pulled my leg out of that hole, I was staring, you know, the, I was looking at the bottom of my ski boot and it was right in front of my chest. I was looking at the sole. My knee was that blown out. Okay, Scott, welcome to the show. Such a pleasure to have you here. Um, my one of my best friends, Ryan. Um, I was, you know, he's he's introduced uh, me to your work, and, and he's, you know, been an outdoorsman for a lot of his life, and just he really took me on some amazing adventures. And so he wanted to make sure that I told you that my first kind of, you know, mountain, you know, with some gear, my first experience doing you know, really outdoor climbing and all that sort of stuff was uh, an ascent into, uh, not really an ascent, but into the bugaboos. And we did Pigeon Spire as my first climb. And so that was a real big <laughs> first <laughs> first experience and it really blew my socks off. It's incredible out there, but you know, shout out to Ryan for sharing that experience with me. Well, Josh, thanks very much for inviting me to be on today. It's a real pleasure and I, I really look forward to our conversation. I have to say that that's sort of uh, a you know, trial by fire, indoctrination into climbing to the bugaboos are in just a fantastic little range of mountains. And um, Pigeon Spire is, you know, not trivial by any means for, especially for a beginner. <laughs> yeah, very, very beginner. Yeah, first go. And it was so funny. We were talking to people out there and, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, we've done this. We've done that. What about you? And I was like, oh, this is my, my first go. And people would be like, what? They're like, oh, my God, you're the luckiest guy on earth. Like, you know, not out of like the difficulty of it, but just the heads majestic out there, like the glaciers. Yeah. And I love the the walk up, like it's hot down the bottom. We went in August and then all of a sudden you're like, these spires just come out of the, the glaciers. It was, yeah. I'm- yeah, it's really a spectacular spot. I love it. And that, that is, an, can be a really, <clears throat> excuse me, interesting way to get indoctrinated. I, my, actually my indoctrination to climbing wasn't, all that dissimilar of, you know, just launching into it with not really knowing what I was doing. Um, I had a, was trying to impress someone. And so, um, was climbing well above my head. Um, but so, but that's why I understand what you're talking about. Amazing. Would you mind embellishing me a little bit on that, on that story? Uh, sure. It was right out of high. I had done some climbing in high school a little bit. Um, but I was, there was I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, which was in the sixties um, and early seventies. Was a real one of the main hotbeds of climbing in in America. Um, it was it was really when climbing was a very rebellious activity. You know, the reason I got involved in it as a kid is was my parents you know, did not want me to be climbing. Um, you know, I was, I was a teenager wanting to break, you know, kind of spread my own wings and do my own thing. And I, I saw this, the climbers were this sort of rebellious lot, um, kind of fringe element of society at that time and a very romantic 
uh, element that was very appealing to, I think, a lot of young guys. There were women involved, but nowhere near the level now that there are there was then. And so I was sort of attracted to that and idealized a number of the climbers around Boulder. And I was young and strong, and and um, I had been hanging around a, a one of the local climbing shop in Boulder at the time, um, and the fellow that owned it just assumed that I was a climber because I was coming in there and um, I had actually managed to scrape together a few dollars and I bought a used pair of climbing shoes and I would, I didn't have a rope or, and we didn't have harnesses back then. You basically just, you know, tied the rope around your waist and went climbing. So I didn't have a lot of equipment, but um, so I would do a little bouldering. So I knew some of the movements and I knew the lingo, of course, because I'd been, you know, tuned into this for a while. And so he invited me to go climbing with him in El Dorado Canyon, which is a fantastic kind of world famous climbing spot just south of Boulder. And uh, I, of course, was way too excited and embarrassed to tell him that I really had never been rock climbing before. And um, <clears throat> and so we we launched out on this climb that, you know, not a particularly difficult climb, although remembering this, you know, this was in the in the late 60s, or maybe it was around 1970, when, you know, 5'7 was considered a moderate grade. You know, it, was not, it wasn't hard back then, but it was considered a moderate grade. One where you would be placing protection as you climbed. And uh, Gary just said, well, do you want to lead the first pitch? And I said, sure. And I, I, he gave me the rack, which, you know, at that time contained some pitons and a few nuts and things like that. And, and I, I launched off on the, the climb and that first pitch, and I didn't even know how to place gear. So I just climbed all the way to the belay, belay ledge, you know, like 100 feet or so, and belayed him up to it. And he went, wow, he didn't put any gear in. He, you know, he was thinking, well, you must be, this is so trivial for you. You're so good. You don't even need to put any protection in. And, and at that point, I felt like I had to confess my, and I said, well, you know, I've never, actually never done this before. <laughs> um, and so we, we hit it off very well at that point because he was kind of that same, same spirit. He was probably 15 years older than I was. Uh, and then we began climbing more and more. And I, and of course, I began to learn a few things and I learned how stupid that was. Um, but yeah, so that was sort of you know, my introduction to technical rock climbing. Amazing, amazing, and and for those that don't understand the uh, the grades, would you mind explaining a little bit about the grades? So just a really quick, you know, overview. So someone sure, there's a in the U.S. we use what's called a, the Yosemite Decimal System, and it was came out of Yosemite in the '50s um, when climbing was being really developed. What we call fifth class climbing. So fifth class means that you're climbing with a rope, of course, and you're belaying your partner and placing gear in the rock, only one person climbing at a time. And um, back then, a rope was maybe 120 to 150 feet long. So the pitches were roughly 100 feet in length. And as people began to get better and better, they decided that they needed to sort of subdivide the fifth grade, this um, this range of, of fifth class climbing all the way from, the, and they use a decimal system 5.0. And at that time, the hardest climbs that were graded were up around five, what were called 510 or 5.10. And so this climb of being 5.7, 5.7, you know, was somewhere in the middle range. Um, and there were only a handful of people then were, were able to climb 510. Now the grades 
have been pushed much, much higher. And their uh, climbing level difficulty at the top end is up at what's called 515. Um, they're, they're still, uh, because it's at the very top end, there's still only a handful of people that, that climb at that level. But yeah, climbing standards have have exploded in the past, um, you know, 30 plus years. Um, you know, people are climbing things that were never considered climbable when I was a kid. Amazing. Was that your fall in love moment? Like, did you have a moment where you were like, oh, this is my thing? Or was there a different... I'd already fallen in love with it, honestly. Um, you know, as a, I was reading every book I could about climbing and fantasizing it. You know, I just didn't have enough money to, you know, buy a rope or, you know, any of the gear. It, you know, that came much later when, you know, we'd save up my my meager savings. My first rope I bought in partnership with one of the guy I first started, not that same guy, but another fellow I started climbing with. We basically saved up all our lifeguarding money from the summer and went halvesies on a rope because that was how we, all we could afford. Yeah. That's amazing. Amazing. And then what were, did you climb mostly around that area or you started to venture out and do trips? Like what was that next, next leg of your journey like? It was certainly local climb because, you know, I was climbing in Colorado primarily. Yeah, we could, we had a 1953 or four Volkswagen Beetle um, that he and I drove around in. You know, that car was hard pressed to get very far. It was very slow. So we were pretty much stuck in Colorado uh, climbing for, for a number of years before we had, uh, you know, the wherewithal to venture outside of Colorado. Legendary. That's so amazing. That's such a, such a good image, image of that adventure. And then what was that, what was that first venture outside Colorado? Um, I suppose, uh, I think the first thing we, he and I did as a partnership was to, um, and this is this is a rather bizarre story, so I'll I'll try to keep it a little bit brief. But he, he and I, I was going to the University of Colorado at that time, and I was there on a swimming scholarship, and so was my good high school friend. And um, but he and I had gotten fascinated by climbing and mountaineering and that sort of thing at that same time. About about coincided. And we decided that really as climbers, we needed to be more well-rounded and we should do some mountaineering. But we, and we had climbed a few of the bigger non-technical peaks in Colorado. That's kind of how we got started. But we decided to take advantage of an opportunity that had presented itself. We, he and I were part of a uh, uh, special program at that time, uh, Olympic development program based out of Colorado Springs, out of the Olympic Training Center. And there was this, an organized trip to, um, to go to Mexico to compete in, it was just after the Pan Am Games and it was going to be a large international meet. And so John and I had heard that there were these mountains, um, these big volcanoes right outside of Mexico City or close by. And um, one of them being um, this mountain called Orizaba. And we, um, so we had this opportunity to go down there and, and do that. And we, so we, we had one day off that where they arranged a bus that was going to take us into this market city of Cuernavaca to, for people to buy, you know, souvenirs and that sort of thing. And what, instead, what John and I had done was the night before we had arranged surreptitiously for a taxi to pick us up outside of this. Uh, we were in this, the, the Mexican Olympic training center uh, for swimming. And we arranged this taxi to pick us up after dinner. And we had smuggled 
you know, some our boots and crampons and ice axes in our luggage down there. And so the taxi drove us to the 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 hut at the base of the mountain. And um, we climbed all night. I climbed all, you know, the next came down early in the morning. We had arranged for the taxi to come back and pick us up and uh, drove us back. And of course, you know, as you might imagine, this was the, you know, the harebrained scheme of a couple of 18-year-olds somehow thought we could pull this off. But in fact, you know, needless to say, the coaches and everybody knew we were gone. They didn't know where we'd gone, but they knew we weren't on the bus to Cuernavaca. And so we, we did face the firing squad when we got back. And of course, the, the next day was the, the start of the meet and we were, we were pretty tired. <laughs> we didn't, I don't think we, we certainly did not perform up to our standards, but, but we had a pretty good time. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then from there, like, what did, did you guys become like mountaineering partners and you kept going or? Yeah, we did. We did quite a few climbs together. Um, we ended up climbing um, Mount McKinley in 1976, which is now it's called Denali, but uh, the mountain at that time was known as McKinley. It's in Denali National Park in Alaska. Um, so we, with uh, some other friends, we um, we drove a 1963 um, uh, Land Rover, short wheelbase Land Rover from Boulder, Colorado to Denali, and this thing had a top speed of about 45 miles an hour, and we had all of our gear crammed inside and packed on top of it, and uh, and we skied in from the north side and were successful, um, and that was that was a pretty big deal for us at the time. You know, that was quite a big adventure, and um, and we were pretty we were pretty proud of ourselves for pulling that off. Could you would you mind explaining Denali? Like it's a pretty big deal in general. Yeah, it's so it's the highest peak in North America. It's a little over 20,000 feet, so roughly 6,000 meters or so. And um, it's heavily glaciated. It's normally climbed from the south and people fly in. There's about a 50, 50 or so mile flight that comes in from the closest little town of Talkeetna and lands people um, with skis on the plains, lands them on the glacier. And they disembark there. And then it's typically, you know, three week um, climb to go up and down um, most. And that's by far the most popular way. Well, we didn't want to do it the most popular way. We had to have a, you know, this was part of our same rebellious streak. We we wanted to do it from the other side and it doesn't get climbed. I mean, I think only two or three, even still, you know, only a handful of parties, just two or three parties a year climb from the north because it's logistically more difficult. Um, but in our case, we didn't have the money to fly in to the, on the glacier. So we drove to the north side and then it's, it's um, I don't remember, probably 25, 30 miles across mosquito infested, boggy, wet tundra. Um, with huge packs, you know, hundred plus pound packs, um, before we got on the, then we could get, then we, then we were able to get on the glacier and then we skied from there up the glacier and we climbed, there's two summits on Denali or now call it Denali because that's the way everyone knows it. Um, there's the North and the South summit. And so we, the first day we climbed the South summit, which is the highest. And then all of us thought, well, we really can't go home without tagging the other summit too. So we went over and, and climbed that one as well. And then we, we skied all the way back down with all of our gear and then, um, you know, hiked all the way back out. And it does involve the crossing of the McKinley River, which is a raging torrent 
when we first went across um, in early June, there, you know, the water was already almost chest deep in some spots, and the river is almost a mile wide. And there are there are sandbars in you know, in a few spots that you could climb up onto and stop shivering because the water's this water's only been liquid for you know a few hours. It's coming off right off the glacier. And um, but on the way out, it was quite epic getting back across because by then it's July. And so the water had, you know, the, the, the melting is much more extensive and um, was was pretty risky, pretty uh, touch and go actually getting across that um, later in the year. <laughs> I love how you said it, it was pretty epic. <laughs> it was pretty dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, and That's then we and then we drove all the way back to Boulder. Wow, um, crazy! And how many? Like at that point, so how long did that whole trip take you, minus the driving? Oh, I think we were on the mountain um, about three weeks or so. I think something like that. Yeah, and the drive took almost as long as most yeah. people are taking three weeks from the plane to do one, and you guys cross through the bog over the river. Up, double peak and back. Yeah. Um, and the drive, I think, probably took us probably close to that long in this old <laughs> Land Rover. Uh, wow. And so yeah. what, like, Matt, how many people had done it from that side at that point? Do you oh, know? I don't know. I mean, it was not, it's not, it's not difficult from that side. Maybe it's slightly more technically difficult. Um, and the glaciers are a little harder to navigate because some of the, the crevasses are a little bigger on that side. But I don't, it's not because of the technical challenge. I think it's more the fact that it's a little more remote. That was the route of the first ascent, actually. Um, yeah, it's called, also called the sourdough route because it, the sourdough was the name given to early, um, the pioneers and miners that were in, in Alaska in the 1800s. And the mountain was climbed, um, as a bet by these miners who, or these sourdoughs, I should say, who through a telescope could see the mountain from Fairbanks, which is quite a bit further north. And probably the little alcohol was involved. And they said, well, we th we're going to go climb that thing. And sure enough, they did. They dog sledded in and they took dog sleds quite high on the mountain um, and climbed it. They they carried a like a 20 foot spruce tree to, you know, without the limbs, just this trunk, carried it up there and planted it on the north summit. And they knew that the south summit was higher, but the north summit, you can't see the south summit from mm -hmm. Fairbanks. So they planted the pole on the north summit so that when they got back there, they could, you know, prove to their buddies <laughs> in the bar that they had actually climbed it. And then, um, so that was, it's, it's quite a story. It's a very Alaskan kind of uh, thing to do. That's hilarious. In the dog sleds, carry the tree. That's amazing. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So what were you guys, what did you pack like for that long? You know, it's very different nowadays, bars, gel, like all of the food stuff. So like, how did you, how did you manage that? that point? Well, we, we did take some dehydrated food, although it wasn't right. at that time, this was 1976, I think when we did that. <clears throat> and at that time, there was very little of the freeze-dried food made for backpacking and mountaineering. Um, so we went to a Seventh-day Adventist grocery store because they sell, Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. And so we were able to buy freeze-dried meat 
And, but it was what's, it's actually called textured vegetable protein. And I, it was not very good. It, you know, it was sort of pretend chicken and beef and that sort of thing. So we could, we could liquefy or we could, um, rehydrate that. And then we had other things like rice and potatoes and normal, that sort of stuff. But we packed all that at home in Boulder and put it into black garbage bags, um, and you know, had a, a each garbage bag had several days worth of food in it. Um, wow! Yeah. Wow! And, have, and, and have you go for it. And then we use these little red plastic child toboggans. You probably have seen them, and we pulled them behind us on on our skis and had you know all, all because that allowed us to you know have a load on our back in the pack, but also you know quite a load in the sled. Um, but the sleds can be quite a challenge to handle when you're on a side hill. You know, you might be, you know, traversing on your skis and the sled, of course, wants to be pulling you straight down the hill. So yeah, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to do. <laughs> That's classic. That's so amazing. And have you, uh, I think I was listening somewhere that you've done multiple different directional ascents of Denali. Is that correct? Yeah, I think I don't, I don't know. Ex I probably have climbed Denali half a dozen times and probably by four, four or five different routes. Yeah. Wow. Which one do you, did you find the most challenging? That original one or? Um, well, the one that I found the most challenging is the one we didn't finish. <laughs> um, so yeah, in let's say 2005, I went back there with a fellow who's quite a well-known um, alpinist in the U.S., actually internationally, a guy named Colin Haley. And Colin and I had planned to do um, this, one of the, what they would call the King Line on the mountain, which is called the Cassine Ridge, named after Ricardo Cassine, who did the first ascent in 1961 over the course of many weeks, a very major expedition. It was considered one of the hardest climbs, uh, alpine climbs in the world at the time. Um, and Colin and I had, our hope was to do um, a single day ascent of that, uh, what they call a single push. So we would have no tent, um, no sleeping bags, just a, a lightweight pack and um, a stove to melt, to melt snow with and a uh, little food and an extra puffy jacket. And, um, so we climbed by the standard route to, uh, to pre-acclimatize for the altitude. And then when we, it was a particularly dry, uh, had been a very dry winter and summer or, and spring so far. And when the, we, the approach to the climb was significantly more challenging than probably the climb itself, um, due to the, due to the, the black ice that we were encountering. And so when we got to the climb, um, you know, we'd already been moving for probably 12 plus hours and we both realized, you know, we're already pretty worked. There was very little chance, you know, we still had 10,000 feet of hard climbing to go to get to the summit and then another several hours to get back down to our camp. And we pulled the plug on that just because, um, you know, we, you know, with that, the style we were doing it in, there's no, room for error um you know you if you because you have no backup there's nothing so we we stopped but so that was certainly the most challenging route i've undertaken there um by quite a long shot it um it's still a, one of the best most beautiful lines in the world on a big mountain wow amazing and what was your first international like 
you know, where you went to a different country, you flew over to, yeah, what yeah, was that first experience? Went to Nepal in 1981. Um, and, you know, this, a, a friend of mine, that fellow that I, who I did my very first rock climb with, organized an expedition to climb this mountain called um, um, Gary Neptune. And there's a mountaineering store in Boulder named Neptune Mountaineering. Um, and uh, so Gary organized a climb of um, Amma de Blom and asked me and you know a few other guys around Boulder to go with him. And at that time, Amma de Blom had only been legal to climb for about four years. I think seven, 1978 was the first year it went on the climb, the list. It's, it was up until that time considered a sacred mountain. And then I think the Nepalese realized they could make an awful lot of money by letting people climb this thing. And they took it off the sacred mountain list and put it on the climbing list. Uh, it is often touted as the most beautiful mountain in the world. It's a really spectacular thing to look wow. at. It's how old when were you people, um, I was, uh, how old was I? Let's see. I was 27, I believe. Yeah. Wow. I think I was 27. Wow. Yeah. Um, by that, I was a hardened 10-year veteran of climbing. <laughs> um, and um, But I, by that time, I was climbing a lot. I was traveling a lot. I mean, I was convinced that, you know, I was going to spend the rest of my life as a climber, even though then nobody was a professional. Very few people, maybe only one person in the world was actually a professional at climbing, and that would have been Reinhold Messner. Um who some people may have heard the name. But anyway, so we went over to climb Amada Blum. It had um, been climbed um, twice before, legally. I think it had had a couple of illegal ascents before that, um, when it, before it was on the list. It was so beautiful that many mountaineers would uh, coveted climbing it. And so some people had snuck up it. Um, and ours was, so ours was the third um recognized ascent of Amand Blom. And I did it with two friends. Um, and we did it in what would be called Alpine style, where there's no, you don't fix ropes. You just start at the bottom with whatever's in your pack and climb to the summit. And it took us, it was only about, a, it's not, it's a 22,000, roughly 22,000 feet tall. So um, like 6,500 6, meters, I think roughly. And, um, we had three camps on it, and um, yeah, that was you know, my first experience in, in you know going overseas to climb. Yeah, how was that when you got? To your oh, it was yeah, it was fantastic. We were you know I was with two really good friends, and the climb went. It was spectacular climbing, <clears throat> and a little bit of everything. Some some challenging rock climbing, um, some steep snow and ice, and had kind of. <clears throat> All the elements that make a great alpine climb were wrapped in. None of it super challenging for us. Um, we, but it was, you know, you know, now it's it's like a lot of the climbs over there. It's <clears throat> heavily glided, guided, excuse me, and so it's got fixed ropes from the summit to the to the bottom. Right, and right. yeah, they, different experience. Yeah, completely different experience now than than when we were there. Wow. Yeah, that feeling of like the other friend that I went with, so Josh another Josh and my buddy Ryan and we're all like so we're like you know really really close friends and that feeling of doing that with close friends I think is one of the hardest things to beat it's just like yeah. sitting at the top of something or finishing a you know long trail run or something like that and just that meal like you know you stop and have a bite at the top and you're like 
nice life's good <laughs> it's just you know it's yeah. such a beautiful moment to, it, to be able to do that with friends and none of, none of us had ever climbed anything quite like that i mean yeah. we'd all climbed big mountains around but none of us had had you know this thing had because it was so alluring and it had already had this reputation um, because of its beauty. And from the summit, you're looking straight across at the south face of Everest and Lhotse and Nupse, all, you know, some of the biggest mountains in the world are just right there, you know, less than 10 air miles away. So it's a pretty, pretty incredible spot to, to spend a little time. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Oh, what I found so wild about Nepal was how hot it is. Like, I just think that there's so much snow and there's so many mountains and then you like land in Kathmandu and I was like just drenched in sweat immediately. Yeah. It's hot. Like It's it's very, yeah, there has quite a dramatic change in um, the, you know, the environment from your know, jungle down below and jungle all the way. I mean, quite a ways hot, quite a ways up the mountains. Yeah. It's very jungly and warm. And, uh, you know, something that a lot of people don't realize that even when you're on some of those big glaciers, it's very hot because of the reflection. Um, Denali is quite famous for that. Who you're because you're on you're in this glaciated valley that's covered in the, the side. The mountains on the side are all snowy, and the, the glacier, of course, is covered in snow. So it's this giant reflector oven. And you know, even though the you know the air temperature can probably doesn't get above you know fifty degrees, it feels like you're in a sauna. It's so so hot. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? And then at nighttime, it's just <laughs> everything's frozen. Anyway. Yeah, then it freezes right up. As soon as the sun goes off the off the, uh, you get into the shadow, you the temperature plummets. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, we were talking earlier before we started recording about how I you know, woke up in Canmore, and I did Lady McDonald's, which is just like a small oh, yeah. one behind it, and I'd never climbed anything that high in my life. Like I'm from Australia, so it's like pretty flat. I'm from Western Australia, so it's very flat. And um, the and I didn't understand just how everything works, you know. So I was like hiking. I had to like warm gear on. And I was hiking, hiking, climbing, and then I was like sweating. And so I was like, oh my god, I'm so hot. And I took everything off. And then we came around, and I was like dying. I'd just come from literally like Minnesota the night the day before. <laughs> so I was like flat as anything going up this mountain. And I remember coming around the corner with like you know my puffy jacket around my waist. And there was a really strong wind and everything just freezing on me. And I was just like, I was like, what's happening? I was like, none of this makes sense. I want to go home. I was like, was get so me funny. out of here. Yeah. 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 It was pretty dramatic. So, you know, you've done that. And then I'd love to know, like, what are, where did always the scars on your knee come from? What's that? What's that about? Uh, yeah. Well, um, so between those two, the you know, climbing Denali the first time in 1976 and climbing de Blanc in 81, <clears throat> I had kind of upped the game, so to speak. Um, I was at the university, as I mentioned, I was, I got a, ended up graduating with a degree in, in mechanical engineering and mathematics. Um, and I, but I was convinced I was never going to be an engineer. I just, I didn't really have much interest in it. I, I, chose to study engineering because I wasn't smart enough to study physics. And so I took after that. And I, you know, the day, the day of my last final exam, I was on an airplane for Alaska to climb. And my friend and I, um, 
not the same one, a different guy named a guy named Brad. He and I had scouted out a line on a very prominent buttress about almost a 5,000 foot rock buttress on a peak near Denali called Mount Hunter. And it's the, the north buttress of that. And so he and I had been training all winter doing hard climbs in Rocky Mountain National Park just outside of Boulder and uh, went up there knowing this was going to be a huge challenge for us. <clears throat> and so we, we arrived there and it turned out to be one of the snowiest um, springs on record. And this route wasn't very safe. So we made a couple of attempts on on the North Butchers of Hunter. It had not been climbed at that time. Um, and we, but we scouted a line that subsequently was climbed um, by a fellow named Mark Twight. Some of your audience might have heard of him. He's um, famous for starting Jim Jones and training a lot of movie actors uh, in the movie 300 and many other movies. Um, Mark ended up com completing this route that Brad and I had seen, and he called it deprivation, which I think is a really good name for for this climb. It was it was pretty, a big struggle for him as well. But Brad and I tried it, got up on it twice, and um, it's it's a series of vertical rock bands that are between 500 and 1,000 feet tall, separated by 60 to 70 degree ice fields. And because the and so the it was snowing so much that frequent avalanches were coming down and scouring the face and we were almost swept off a couple of times we luckily managed to be right under the vertical rock bands when <clears throat> these avalanches came down they weren't like massive avalanches but definitely big enough to sweep us off the face um so was that and so we luck? That you guys were there we were just it was just luck to... that we were able to be in a sheltered spot when the avalanches yeah. went over top of us and so we in each case we just turned tail and got you know went down as fast as we could um, and we waited for we probably spent almost two weeks waiting for conditions to change and it just wasn't changing and so Brad at that point was getting bored with it all and said, I'm, I'm leaving. And I said, well, heck, I you know, spent the money to come here. I'm going to do something. And so, um, I didn't have a permit for Denali, but it was just around the corner up the glacier, 10 miles. <clears throat> so I thought I took my skis and a loaded up a, a big pack and I skied up to Denali thinking, well, I'm just going to go up there and see what happens, you know, and, um, and I was using you know, ski gear and that sort of thing was pretty primitive in the 70s for, for skiing in the backcountry. I was using normal cross-country skis with flimsy little low-top boots, and partly because they were very light and I could move pretty fast on them. And then I would carry my mountaineering boots. So I put all of that stuff in the pack. And I was on that route that's nowadays very popular. But at that time, there was almost no one on the mountain besides me. This was early May, um, like just the first week of May. And because, like I said, the, my last final happened. We were on a plane to Anchorage that afternoon. Um, and so I got up there. And again, the weather was terrible. So I hung out at a um, this made a little base camp at about 14,000 feet on this and I was looking up at this 5,000 foot face above me and I saw this beautiful line, this couloir, which is a, a snow filled, snow and ice filled gully. Um, and I thought, wow, that's a great looking line, but it looks like it would be, uh, have a lot of avalanche danger in it. And 
so I, I spent a couple of days waiting again for the weather and freakishly at about midnight one night I was outside you know it's daylight there you know or you know almost twilight it never gets darker than just sort of twilight that time of year I saw that whole couloir rip out with a huge avalanche it came right down it and I thought okay that thing's going to be safe now you can climb it so I literally grabbed you know I, I put I had a little fanny pack um which were kind of a new invention in the 70s, you know, just a small packet. And I put a water bottle and two Baby Ruth candy bars in that fanny pack. And um, and then I headed off to this, um, climb this thing, and then ended up climbing it. Uh, at the so time- you left your main pack? I left, I left my camp there with all the stuff. Yeah. And I was going to climb to the, the idea, climb to the top, come back down to my camp. And I figured I could do it in, you know, eight or 10 hours. So wasn't, didn't seem like that would be too long to be away from that stuff. But I left at midnight. It was very cold. So I had pretty much all the clothes I had brought with me on. And I did, um, the, the initial part was challenging. There's a, there's a big crevasse at the start of the climb. Um, they call that a Bergschrund. Um, it's where the glacier separates from the stationary, the permanent snow on the face. And that was really sketchy to get across. Um, it's quite a big lip on it. And, but once I got across it, I realized I can't go back. I have to go up now because there's no way to re recross this thing. So I climbed up the thing. It's about, I think the total vertical on in the cool war was about 4,500 feet. So, you know, almost 1500 meters. And, um, it was about, it's about 50 degrees. And because it had avalanche, the, the bed surface was now very firm, you know, some of it ice and some of it just very hard packed, what they call neve, which is like kind of like hard styrofoam ice. So it was perfect for climbing. And um, I got to the top and was pretty euphoric. I think, oh, man, I've just done this first ascent, this new route on a huge mountain um, by myself. Um, and so I but then I, I returned back to that camp that um that that morning, because I got to the summit at about, I think, probably seven or eight in the morning. And then I was back down in you know, maybe three hours. It was probably 10 or 11 in the morning when I got back to my camp. And I, by that time, some other people had shown up to where I was camping. And they were kind of amazed that I'd done this thing. I don't think anybody had done something like that there that early. Now, it get, now that particular route does get climbed with some frequency. But... Um, I was so excited about that. I thought, well, I'm going to just ski all the way back down to where the airplane dropped us off, where I had more food. I was going to rest a few days. And then I was going to ski up and climb the Cassine Ridge, that route that I mentioned trying before with uh, my friend Colin. Um, and because I was at that time, I was kind of I was on top of the world. I just thought, well, heck, I just did that. I can go climb the console of the Cassine, which I don't think had been soloed at that point. So um, I waited all day until the glacier began to freeze up because during the day when it's hot, like we were talking about, it's just mush. And because I had these crappy, skinny little skis and very soft, light boots, I was having to use a turn, a ski turn called the Telemark turn, which is kind of unstable. Um, you know, but it was on that primitive gear. It was the only way to really control and turn the skis. What so what about... Well, it's where um, it was originated in the province of Telemark, Norway, when 
back in the 20s, probably the teens or the 20s, when everybody skied on crappy skis that didn't want to turn. And the way you you get into a staggered sort of split stance. People who are familiar with, let's say, weightlifting exercises, it looks a little like a split squat where one foot is well out in front of the other and you angle the front foot and the front ski uh, slightly compared to the rear ski. And that pushes the rear ski around a corner. And when you've got these crappy skis that don't want to turn, they weren't really designed to turn. They're designed to go straight. And, um, so I started down at about midnight. Things had frozen up pretty well. <clears throat> I didn't, and I, I skied down maybe 2,000 feet or so. And I was in the midst of this telemark turn when my front ski broke through the frozen crust and went in a couple feet, so right up to my knee. And I had about an 80-pound pack. And I pivoted, so we can imagine my lower leg was completely immobilized vertically in that crust of snow, I pivoted over my that knee, around that knee with this 80-pound pack, and it made a horrendous noise. <clears throat> um, and so I had to, first, I'm, I'm upside down. My head is stuck through the crust of the snow, and I've got this big pack pushing my face in. I had to get out of that, and then I could... I'm, I could tell something was wrong because my leg was pointing the wrong direction. And I reached down into the hole where my foot was and undid the binding and it pulled my leg out. And it looked like my knee was a universal joint. Um, I didn't, I couldn't move my lower leg. It like I would, I could move my body and my lower leg would just sort of dangle along below me. And I had to pick it up and reposition it to put it where I wanted. So I realized then I've done something really bad to my knee. Um, I didn't, I didn't have any idea what it was and I was all by myself. There was no one on that part of the mountain at all. Um, so I, what time is it? What time? this was around midnight, one o'clock, maybe one o'clock in the morning. Um, again, it's daylight almost. So it's, you know, the, the darkness isn't any kind of an issue. So I started to set up my tent um, and I had a, I started to pull the tent poles out and they're like, they were, it was one of the very first tents that was made. Now, almost all tents have the want, the, the poles have little rubber bungees in them to hold them together so that when you pull the poles out, they snap and become, you know, the poles are in sections and they snap together. This is the, one of the very first pole, um, tents that was made like that. And as I'm pulling the poles out and beginning to set up my tent, I drop one of those poles and it goes skittering down the glacier and bridges a crevasse about a hundred yards away. And I'm just going, oh shit, what else could go wrong now? And so I have to crawl down there a hundred yards, my leg dragging behind me, get this pole that's um, spanning the crevasse, crawl back up, set up the tent, get inside. And then the pain started. And so I thought, okay, I am going to be delirious with pain tomorrow. I need, so I wrote, you know, I had a little diary that I kept and I, I wrote down this list of things I was going to need to do the next morning when I had to head down. Um, and I sp spent a very uncomfortable night. I didn't even have aspirin with me. It had no, no painkillers of any kind. Spent a really uncomfortable night there. And in the morning, by, by morning, my knee was the size of a soccer ball. Um, and completely rigid, locked, you know, so it couldn't be moved at all. And I, so I made a little sled out of putting my skis together and you know, lashing the pack to the skis. And then I would, I lay on top of the pack and 
I pushed with my good leg and I pulled with my ice axe. And then I spent two days crawling down the glacier back to where the airplane had dropped me off and was going to pick me up. Um, and then when I, so when I finally got back to the landing spot, um, where the plane was going to pick up, once again, the weather had turned terrible. And the guy who flew me in there was a friend of mine from Boulder. He had a, a um, a ski plane operation there where he flew people onto the glacier named Jim Sharp, who's since been killed in a, a flying accident. But Jim was knew that I was hurt because there was a radio operator at the, on the glacier then. Um, and the radio operator's job was to let pl the planes know when the weather was good enough that they could land on the glacier. Because landing on a glacier with with low clouds, you know, everything's white and you can't, you have no depth perception at all. So it's extremely hazardous for everyone. And so for, for five days, I lay there waiting for a break in the clouds. And, and I could hear Jim fly in almost every day, circle around. He came in a couple times each day looking for a hole in the clouds where he could come down through and, and pick me up. And finally, there was a little hole and he comes dropped through this cloud and um, <clears throat> he had radioed to the radio operator. Hey, I'm going to try to get through here. Tell Scott to get ready. So I packed everything up and Jim landed and um, we were on the ground for he was on the ground for less than five minutes, you know, and threw me in the plane, um, flew me back to Talkeetna. I and went home to Boulder, and I was kind of a wreck. Um, it took me another several days to get an appointment to see an orthopedic surgeon who, and now remember, I'm kind of at the peak of my youthful vigor at 20, whatever I was, 24 years old or so. Um, and I go in to see the surgeon, and he says, well, I've got some bad news. You're probably never going to be very functional again. You know, this is, you know, I had basically destroyed the knee, had completely dislocated. When I pulled my leg out of that hole, I was staring, you know, the, I was looking at the bottom of my ski boot and it was right in front of my chest. You know, I was looking at the sole and my, my, my knee was that blown out. Um, and so he said, I'll do the best, you know, orthopedic surgery in the seventies was nothing like it is today. And, um, he, patched you back together, but he said, you're going to probably be walking with a cane the rest of your life. And that was a pretty shocking thing to hear for somebody who, you know, was, you know, I'm coming off the mountain with this euphoria that I can do anything. And then you get this dose of reality and it all happened, you know, in a literally, you know, less than a second, I went from being Superman to being, to crawling on the glacier, hoping to survive. And that was a really humbling experience and completely life-changing. You know, at that point, I just had to refocus and readjust and um, figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my life now? Because I had, you know, I was thinking I was on this trajectory to be a climber the rest of my life. And um, I had no insurance. And um, so I ended up after the surgery and after a long healing period, I was in a full length cast from crotch to toes or crotch to ankle for um, six months. And my leg had atrophied to where I think my arm was bigger than my legs. So and when I took, when they kept having to change the cast to make it smaller and smaller as um, over every few weeks I'd have to get a new cast. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to have to 
basically prostitute myself and go to work as an engineer, even though I had no interest in, in doing so. And that's in, so it did change the trajectory of my life. And we don't need to hear whole, my whole life story. But that was a real pivotal moment for me in terms of, you know, with most young people, and I think many of us never really realize our fragility, you know, how fragile, what the, the, our grip on life is. Um, I could easily have been killed. And, um, and so I just, I suddenly felt mortal, you know, as most 24 year olds feel immortal. There's a reason they send 20 year olds into battle and not 50 year olds. Um, and I, I had that same sort of feeling I'm invincible until boom, suddenly you realize I'm not invincible. So that's, and then I ended up having seven surgeries to try to fix that knee. So that's where all those scars on my knee came from. <laughs> Long story about those scars on my knee. What a story, man. Wow. I mean, I'd love to hear about the, the recovery process, but I'd just love to clarify. So you're, you had your ski and then you have the bag on top of the ski and then you're lying on top of it belly down and you're picking. Kind of on my, I lay on my side mostly. Yeah, I was, I was lying on my side and um, pushing with the good leg. Um, and then luckily, you know, glaciers flow downhill. So I really, most of, most of the way was downhill, but every now and then there'd be a small rise. And that was a big challenge. That's why it took me two days. It was pretty slow going uphill with that technique because I would put the ice axe in to hold myself while I readjusted, you know, move my foot to push, you know, moving like 10 inches at a time, probably. Wow. Wow. Did you ever lose control and like you know slip down too fast or like how was you no the, it wasn't that i wish it had been faster like that i would have been <laughs> would have loved it if it slid that fast but no it was it was a pretty crude setup you know the the pack is dragging in the snow and um so no it wasn't ever i never at any risk of of like oh sliding goodness, into another man. crevasse or something wow wow what was the yeah like what was your mental conversation like as you were going back like how did you manage that because it wasn't a couple of hours. You said it was a couple of days, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, interestingly, that you know, people have asked me that before, and you know, I never had, never had the slightest doubt that I was going to yeah. be fine. Just one foot. You know, it just never occurred to me. It's like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to take a long time. I'm, I'm going to handle it. I'm just going to deal with it as it comes. But it, it was never thinking. Oh my, you know, there was never the poor me moment or a woe is me or how am I going to get myself out of this? I mean, I, I knew what I had to do and it was pretty straightforward. Um, so it was, you know, I just focused on, you know, one, one, one step at a time. Yeah. <laughs> one, one drag at a time. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And then, yeah, like with your rehab process, I mean, you said seven surgeries. Yeah, it's over back. the next probably 20 years, seven surgeries to try to you know, fix things up. Um, ended up finally about 15 years ago getting that knee replaced because I had you know, I had pretty much uh, worn it out. Um, so because of that, I was, you know, torn all the, I destroyed all the cartilage and, you know, blown out all these ligaments. And, and I went on to, you know, have a fairly successful ski racing career after that and climbing a lot more big mountains. So, you know, it was sort of when that, when the orthopedic surgeon told me I was, you know, never going to walk without a cane, that was like throwing the gauntlet down. You know, I was thinking, hell no, that I'm, 
I'm too young. There's, that can't happen. Um, so I, I don't know that I took it so much as a challenge, but I think that scared me more than anything else was that I was going to be a cripple the rest of my life from this. And I was determined not to. And I, but, but in the process of having that ski racing career, doing all this running around in the mountains and climbing big mountains, I completely destroyed that. And by the, by the time, you know, I was, I think I had it replaced when I was about 55 or so. So 15 years ago. Um, so there wasn't much left at that point. It was bone on bone, and it got to the point where it was just so painful to move around with it. Um, then I and and I'm back to you know running fairly high mileage and climbing and skiing and doing all those things again. So it was, um, I'm really glad I I went for it. Wow, wow. What what do you think that you know, like you were saying that you went from feeling immortal to mortal, and I've had my own experiences of that. Um, like what what did you? What was the benefit that you think from that that you got from that experience that you've taken forward? I think the sort of the the notion of carpe diem. I know we're we're here for a pretty short time. You need to get do what you can while you're here, maximize whatever your potential is, whatever your dreams are. Um, and I've definitely lived my life that way ever since. You know, I when I went to work for that engineering firm, I. It was a uh, in Boulder. It was an aerospace firm, and I promised my father I would stay a year. I lasted a year and one day um, because I thought this sitting in a room with you know twenty other young engineers drawing pictures. We were working on space shuttle part. That was when the space shuttle was brand new, and I was designing some of the hinges for the big doors on the space shuttle. And I just thought, I can't spend the rest of my life doing this. I just, you know, this is not what I signed up to do. Um, and luckily for me, I had a, a great professor from the university who one day I called him because I heard he was getting married. And I said, hey, Frank, just congratulations. And he said, hey, how are you liking it there? Um, and I said, oh, Frank, I hate it. I can't stand it. And he says, well, I'm leaving the university, setting up my own business. Why don't you come to work for me? And so he and I um, set up a partnership, ended up setting up a partnership where we um, had our own engineering firm. And we were working in the astronomy area, um, building um, instrumentation that's used for astronomical work, uh, cameras. And uh, we also were building the big telescopes, like um, professional grade telescopes up to the biggest one we built was about a three and a half meter mirror. Um, so really large stuff. And we ended up having patenting several technologies that kind of revolutionized telescopes. Um, and so I did that for a number of years. And that was, you know, much more along the lines of what I wanted to do. But it was, you know, again, or not again, but it was really an accident. You know, I just happened to call Frank out of the blue saying, you know, congratulations on getting married. And this, you know, the door opened and I jumped through it, you know, so that, and I've had several other opportunities like that in my life. And I've just realized that you, when something like that is staring you in the face, you, you just need to take advantage of it. Totally. Totally. And how did you go back to climbing? Like what was the first experience? Yeah, it took like a long time. Like, yeah, it took um, probably, I think I, because my knee had been locked in this cast for six months, it didn't want to bend. And so it took me almost a year to get most of the flexion back in my knee to where that I could even ride a bicycle um, and climbing. 
Luckily, I had some understanding friends around Boulder who would take me out climbing. Um, and they knew my limitations at that point. But after two or three years, well, I mean, that was that happened in May of 78. And by September of 81, I was climbing in Nepal on Amanda Blom. So, you know, it did take a few years to get back to that level. Um, but it, it did come finally. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't let the dream die. You know, so. No, I, I climbed, you know, I'm not very active at climbing anymore, um, more just due to circumstances of work and that sort of thing. But um, I, yeah, I climbed for at a pretty high level for quite a few years after that. Yeah, wow. And then where did the transition into coaching and the uphill athlete and all that sort of stuff come like the, the book and, um, you know, the the Alpinist book and all that sort of stuff? Where'd that yeah, another from? freak accident, you know, that occurrence really. So, um, when I, I moved to a small community, um, in Washington that had a very Washington state that had quite a, uh, active junior cross country racing program, kids program. And I had been skiing, at, cross country ski racing at quite a high level, did some time of work racing on the world cup level. And, um, when I got there, they were the woman who had been coaching the program got pregnant and was going to step down. And they said, hey, you know, we know you have this background. Would you coach these kids? And I immediately said yes. And then, you know, at some point realized, well, actually, you don't know anything about coaching. Um, and so I did this crash course trying to learn about you know, the sort of the, the training and theory of all that. Um, and, and also especially how to coach kids, how to coach juniors. And, um, you know, I, I was buying these Norwegian coaching manuals because in Norway coaching, you know, cross country skiing is like football in the U S it's a huge national pastime. And I was trying to learn all that I could ended up coaching there for about 10 years. And I produced, um, five Olympians and, um, you know, the, I, I was co we had about 120 kids in the program, and I was the lead coach. Then they were from the age of six to high school, 18 years old. Um, and during that time, I made the acquaintance of uh, an alpinist who lived there named Steve House. And Steve was kind of on a quest to become the best alpine climber in the world and asked me if I would help train him. Wow. So where was this story, Scott? Where, where this was in north central Washington state in a Got tiny, it. tiny little hamlet of um, Mazama is the name of the town. Um, and it's got it's right on the um, the eastern edge of North Cascades National Park. And so some of the most beautiful mountains in the lower 48 states, um, big glaciated peaks and all that. So very good training ground for alpine climbing. So anyway, I began to coach Steve who then went on for about seven or eight years with my coaching to do some of the hardest alpine climbs in the world, um, some of which have never been repeated. Um, you know, here we are almost, you know, 20 years later. And he then had a, a, a very serious accident in about 2010 where he was almost killed and it pretty much ended his professional climbing career. And he, he, during his rehabilitation, he, um, a recovery, he wrote a, a memoir and he went on a book tour. The book was published by Patagonia. It's called Beyond the Mountain. 
And um, he went on a book tour. I was in Norway that winter coaching skiers racing on the World Cup. And he and I were having a, a Skype call back then saying, then he, he said, you know, everywhere I go, people are asking me, how did you train to do all this stuff? And he said, I've got I've developed this one liner, which is, well, I could tell you, but it would take a whole book. So he said, I think we should write down what we did for my training. And I said, I don't think anybody will care. I don't, this, it's, you know, it's a fairly, it's quite a niche area of who's going to care about training for this kind of climbing. And I said, we'd be lucky to sell a few hundred copies of a book like that. So he eventually talked me into it. The book, the first book we wrote was called Trading for the New Alpinism. And it um, basically, well, we ended up selling almost 200,000 copies of that book. So it sort of changed the way people approached their training for climbing. And um, we almost immediately, we thought we would write this book and then just go back to our lives. That no one would really care very much. Patagonia published it and did a great job. It's a beautiful book and they uh, did a great job distributing it. We were inundated with people asking for training advice and coaching. So we started a business called Uphill Athlete to help train those people. Um, shortly after that book was published, um, another we, we got contacted by a fellow who's a bit of a legend in the mountain running and mountain skiing community named Killian Journey, a Spanish guy. And Killian... Um, who holds a speed record on Mount Everest and a, number, a lot of other famous uh, mountains. He came to us and said, hey, I really like what you guys have done here, but you really need to do a book like this for running and skiing in the mountains because most people are going to look at this and go, oh, well, I'm not a climber. This doesn't apply to me. And I said to him, well, sure, I'll do it if you will help me write it. If you'll um, so basically he and I ended up writing this second book, which is called Training for the Uphill Athlete, that's focused not on climbing, but on running and skiing. And um, that one was also proven to be pretty successful. So this is another one of those you know, unplanned, fortuitous accidents, really, that happened. And we, you know, coming together with Steve after coaching skiing. Um, I went on to keep, I continued coaching skiing for a number of years. Um, but then the business began to grow so much. The coaching business grew so much that, um, we, you know, it's, yeah, it's become very popular. Um, the, this kind of we're well known in the climbing and running communities. Um, about a year or so ago, I split off from Steve and formed a different company that's focused more on, on, um, coaching and it's called Evoke Endurance and about 17 of the 19 coaches that were working at Uphill Athlete came with me and it's, you know, we're, we've got a booming business. So amazing, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to know, like, when you said you did this crash course course on on coaching when you were teaching those, you know, young kids, what was it and what do you think clicked for you that produced these incredible, you know, literal, literal world-class athletes? That Well, what I did that I think, you know, I didn't invent anything, frankly. Um, all of this stuff, training for endurance sports is, you know, a well-studied area. And by endurance sports, I mean anything that lasts more than about two minutes, is primary would be considered an endurance activity. Now that may seem really short to people, but you know, by endurance, what I mean is that the the aerobic 
metabolic process is the dominant energy production process for that those kinds of activities so from two hour from two minutes to two hours to two days it's the aerobic system is what is fueling your movements and what i what i saw when i began to coach cross-country skiing was there wasn't especially in english very much literature um about coaching skiing so i began to look outside and since i don't read Norwegian, I was forced to start looking. Let's look at some other endurance sports that are well studied. Cycling, running, swimming were the, the, the three I went to because there are huge amount of information on the way those the athletes in those sports have trained. And the, the, the methodologies that have been tried and abandoned or modified. And, you know, if you, it, sports science, or coaching, I should say. Sports science is a slightly different animal. But coaching is the process, sort of an evolutionary process of trial and error. And you see what works. And, you know, the body of knowledge, if you have tens of thousands of swimmers, let's say, training a certain way under, you know, and maybe you've got, you know, a thousand different coaches with different coaching methodologies, the ones that produce the best results, because it's very easy to measure results if you're using a stopwatch. You know, every pool is 50 meters long. And so you can see which training methodologies work and which don't. You can say the same thing with running, cycling, rowing, doesn't matter. And so I began to look at the prevalent training methodologies that worked in these more traditional sports, as opposed to, you know, then cross-country skiing, which there wasn't much documented and study on at that time. And I pulled together this knowledge base, which is incredibly broad, and sort of sorted through it and pulled out the things that looked to me most promising. Then I put them together and made them applicable to skiing. And I did the same thing with climbing. I looked at how traditional um, endurance sports were trained, you know, alpine climbing, even though there's a high, a high <clears throat> technical component, a skill component that goes along with it, the actual demands on the body, you know, there's a strength component too, but it's primarily an endurance sport because you're doing things that take many, many hours of hard work. And so I began to do the same thing when I was working with Steve, taking traditional knowledge and applying it in an untraditional way. And that, you know, I'm still doing that today. It's the same. It's kind of the underlying um, philosophy that, that we have. Um, it's in the books. It's on the website. It's our, all of our coaches use it is, you know, this stuff is pretty well understood. Um, but most people haven't been able to put it together in these unconventional sports. Yeah. Do you mind if I just read a, a quote that, that I've got from you, which I think is really yeah. relevant? I think you've said, uh, people who randomly exercise a lot can become very good, but they'll probably never maximize their genetic potential without getting in some sort of structured training program. And the difference between exercise and training, of course, is that training has a progression to it where what is hard for you now will become easier for you in the future because of the gains and progressiveness of the training. Would you mind elaborating on that? I know it was a, it was a long quote, but the sure. and the complexity of individuals and our training and, and the importance of having a plan because it's like i i got really fit when i was doing a lot of mountain trail running and we did like 12 hour stuff and you know i got i, I feel like i've just got you know some genetic you know <laughs> advantages to that sort of stuff and mm -hmm. it was but it was completely random ad hoc 
And it's yeah. like when you look at that, where I got to versus where I could have gotten to in that time frame, the reality is it's probably a pretty big gap. Well, perhaps. And if you had wanted to pursue it farther, yeah, you probably would have needed to part, put, started to put more structure and organization and progression into your training. So there's when when I first started lecturing about training for climbing, you know, one of the big pushbacks we got was these people didn't want to train. They just wanted to go out and go climbing, which is essentially what you were doing. You just want to go running. You don't want to have to be, adhere to some sort of schedule. Or, and I completely get it. Uh, you don't need to, not everybody needs to train like an Olympian. However, if you have, let's say, reached a plateau in your, in your fitness and performance, and you are looking to go beyond that, then it's wise to look at, okay, how do real athletes train? Now, you, what you, you said in that quote, which I still completely stand by, is that you can become very fit by randomly exercising, especially if you've got lots of time on your hands. And that's how many people have pursued their sports, whether it's ultra running or climbing, is you just, if you run enough, yes, you're going to get very fit. If you go out and climb five days a week, you're going to become very good at climbing and very fit. But eventually you're going to bump into probably, you know, your genetic limitations or the limitations imposed by the fact that you're, you're probably just most people when they are exercising, they do the kind of exercise that, that appeals to them. It's fun that they enjoy. Whereas athletes are not typically the things you enjoy, the things you're already pretty good at. But if an athlete wants to improve, they need to figure out what they suck at. What is the, what's holding you back from performing at a higher level? And that means, you know, looking for the low hanging fruit and training things that may not be high on your list that you, so it's like, okay, this is work now. It's not recreation. Um, and what you'll find when you do that, I mean, it's more work. It's more structured. Um, but almost inevitably, if it's done, if it's done halfway well, you're going to get better results than random exercise, unless you just happen to have, you know, 15, 20 hours a week that you can devote to random exercise. Um, but most people don't have that. Um, yeah. And, and would you mind maybe, you know, for someone who's looking to get a coach or looking to get support on this sort of stuff, and, you know, there's obviously you guys, but if they're trying to create a lens to look through to find a good coach versus a bad coach, do you have any just quick suggestions for someone to have to change their perspective instead of just, you know, because finding a bad coach or, you know, a bad trainer can sometimes end up in injury, which is. The yeah. Yeah. So I think what's most important when you're interviewing a coach is to understand what their coaching philosophy is. Um, I believe the, the most important thing for a coach to, the, the ethos that has to underlie coaching is the same as with doctors. We need a, we have our own Hippocratic oath. First is first do no harm. That's, you know, it's, it's so easy to screw people up. And so our, our first goal is to not screw people up. Then the second is to ask, you know, what their philosophy is and how they're going to progress you from point A to point B. Um, it can't be randomized. Uh, I mean, if it's randomized, then you, why do you need a coach? You could just go randomly do this your, on your own and, and have, you know, maybe it's not guided, but if your coach is applying randomization to your training, this whole notion that is prevalent in some of the exercise r routines that are popular today of 
confu- muscle confusion. I mean, that's antithetical to sport training. Um, yeah, it's fine for exercising, and it's certainly a lot better than you know, sitting around on the couch eating potato chips, but it's not the way athletes train. You have to... Um, have a goal, you have to be structured and identify that goal and then know what the steps you're going to take between now and the goal are. And then in an intermediate along the path at intermediate times, you'll be testing yourself to see, am I progressing toward that goal? Is the training working? Because if the, if you're, if you know, most training doesn't happen the way it happens in Hollywood movies where, you know, people make massive improvements overnight. That just, that's not the way our body responds. It takes, you know, many, many hours, weeks and weeks, months and months before you see significant gains. Um, and especially when it comes to endurance. And, but you should see. Uh, in general, uh, an improvement in performance over the course of, you know, week to week, month to month. And if you're not, then there's something wrong. Something you're, you're, you're either in most people's case, especially <clears throat> most people who are attracted to endurance sports are type A personalities where in almost every case, more is going to be better, which is not always, which is not true. In fact, um, in, in many cases, more is too much. And what a coach can do is help you find that balance between how much is enough to create the proper stimulus to um, cause these adaptations that make you perform better and how much, because doing too much actually detrains you. Your body will kind of go into a state of what's called overtraining where it maladapts. It does not adapt to the training stimulus anymore. And so just doing more is often a ba- really bad idea. Um, so I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but, um, you know. Yeah, no, super helpful. And, and how do you manage people through that process? Because I, I know myself, sometimes I'm addicted to more. More yeah. feels better. feels like I'm progressing. Like I've attached so much in my past and through my growth that doing more yeah. is the answer. And yes. how, how do you help people not fall into that trap? Well, there are a number of ways. The first is we coach, my coaching experience, because it's been with very high level athletes primarily, is very, coaching is a really intimate relationship. And it's, it's at some level, it's a partnership between the athlete and the coach. And the only way that partnership can work well is if there's a lot of communication daily. There has to be daily communication. Like I want to see the data that you upload from your fancy watch into the platform that we use, which is called Training Peaks for administering the training. I want to see the data that comes from that so I can know what you did. But as important to that, I want to hear how that, what your perception of this was. How did this feel to you? And the combination of these two, the hard data and the, the sort of the perception is how then I can understand how is this training affecting you and what needs to be adjusted. And so one of the giveaways of bad coaching is when someone hands you a spreadsheet that tells you what you're going to be doing three Thursdays from today. I mean, that's absolutely nonsense. There is no way that's not coaching. Yes, it could be a training plan. And if you know enough about training theory, you could take a plan like that and self-coach yourself through it. But coaching means evaluating where you are today every single day 
and like, okay, this is how your legs are feeling today. You're still feeling that run you did yesterday. Okay, tomorrow we're changing up and we're not going to do what I thought we're going to do. We're changing and do something else because you're not, you clearly haven't recovered yet. And if you're not in a recovered state, your body's not going to be able to adapt. You know, we, we can adapt. We're amazingly adaptable creatures, but we don't like rapid change. Um, you know, we don't like it where this is what's wrong with the, the idea that, you know, you need to finish every workout in a pool of sweat and blood on the floor, you know, because, you know, that's, that can be gratifying. And then there is some, you know, we get some happy hormones released when we do that sort of thing, but that is absolutely not the way athletes train. Um, and so this, that's where this, you know, no pain, no gain mentality has kind of taken over in the popular mindset that, you know, whether it's through the, you know, social media, YouTube, movies, you name it, that that's how, you know, real athletes train. It's, that's silly. It's not true. Um, you know, you can't have a long, you couldn't train that way long term and expect good results. You might see some good results in a very short term basis, but eventually your body is going to rebel to the, against that kind of thing. Mm. Wow, thanks. That was an amazing, amazing summary and explanation. I, I've got a few last questions to ask you, Scott, and uh, I wish we weren't at time because I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for hours on end. I think you're, yeah, your stories are amazing. The way you explain it is just so clear and helpful. I, I'd love to know if you're looking back on this last year and you were having a reflection, what's something that has gone really well that you're really proud of that's happened in the last 12 months? Well, I think the, you know, starting this new business with all my coaches, um, we're we're a co-op now where the coaches are owners of the business and have skin in the game, and you know it's you know we have a great team. I'm really proud of all of them. They're wonderful to work with, and having them have the confidence in me that when I said, "Hey, I'm leaving Uphill Athlete, going to go start this new thing." Um, and I didn't put any pressure on any of them. I just said, hey, it's, you know, you need to do what's best for you. And, you know, virtually all of them left and came with me. So I'm very proud of, of them. I'm so thankful that they trusted me and had the confidence that we could pull this off. And, and we have. And so that has, that has been huge um, personally uh, and emotionally Absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and, then, and then looking forward for the 12 months ahead of us, what's something that you're really excited about? Um, well, one of the thing, one of the areas that I feel we have made a pretty significant difference in that I'm very proud of um, and excited about continuing is on the military side of things. So several years ago, probably six or seven years ago, I started working with some Navy SEALs who came to me. They had been deployed in Afghanistan and discovered that the fitness that they had they didn't have adequate fitness for running up and down those big mountains in, in Afghanistan. And I began to work with them. Um, I've helped some of them progress to the high, a higher level, the SEAL Team 6. Um, and I, then I began to work with other uh, Tier 1 special operations groups in the U.S. Um, and actually, last winter, I was a featured speaker at the International Association of Military Mountain Warfare Schools. That's kind of a mouthful. But it was a, about 30 countries came together. And we, I was dealing, presenting um, information on how I've trained a lot of special operations groups and individuals. 
Um, because we're using is again, once, I mean, I don't know anything about what they do from a tactical standpoint. I'm not an expert in that by any means, but I have found that the methodologies that I've used with all these other endurance athletes apply extremely well to these guys in the special operations world. And so our, that side of our business has grown enormously. And it's something that I feel really good about because we're able to provide these guys with tools that make them better at their job, keep them safer, um, that sort of thing. So yeah, that's been, that's been wonderful. And I've really enjoyed all the interactions. It's just a, as a population, there's a great group of people to work with. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm really looking forward to reconnecting. That was an incredible conversation. Mm -hmm.